0: Uh, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I am, am doing an interview today that I'm, I'm very excited about. It's with uh, Jeffrey Kripal, who is the Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. He's the author of numerous books, but the two that I happen to be reading right now are Mutants and Mystics and authors of The Impossible. So, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today and for doing this interview.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: You're very difficult at least from what I've read to exactly put in any category. Uh but you are uh, as your as your bio says uh working in in the domain of religious thought and religious studies. Uh and there's you're definitely taking a very original look. Uh so I guess what I was wondering for for all the people who who aren't familiar with you, which will probably be quite a few listening to this uh what is it you know in a general sense, how would you describe what you do uh as an as an academic and what has compelled you uh to pursue religious thought in the way that you are?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, this is what
0: I call—I
1: uh, put this under the rubric of what to say on a plane. You know, exactly.
0: That's that's what I'm looking for.
1: Yeah, and it's always a problem because we we don't really have professions or public personas in our culture that 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 do this, or at least that people recognize as doing this. So. You know, I've tried everything on the plane, Uh, professor of religion, professor of comparative religion, historian of religion, you know, nothing really works for people because they've never encountered this way of thinking about things. Um, I was trained, I mean, technically speaking, I was trained in a history of religions uh, program at the University of Chicago in the late 80s and 90s. and that program was really created by a man named Mircea Eliade, um, a well, very well-known Romanian uh, scholar of religion who came to the States and founded that that program. I never worked with Eliade. He died the year I got there. I worked with uh, his successor, a woman named Wendy Doniger. Um, I mean, ge- very generally speaking, the history of religions is a, a lineage, an intellectual lineage within the academy that looks at religion in a in a big big historical sweep really from you know the cave paintings to the new age and tries to understand religion comparatively across cultures and across time and one of the ways it does that at least in some of its practitioners is we look at what i would call extreme uh, religious states uh, out of body experiences visionary experiences um, mystical unions these sorts of things and try try to draw um not conclusions but but theories of how what religion is from those extreme states rather rather like one say studies the nature of matter by by traumatizing it in the large hadron collider you know you need a you need an extreme state to figure out what matter is and uh, my assumption is you you need to look at extreme religious states to to figure out what religious experiences. Mm. And and so that's what I do is I look at these extreme states across cultures and across historical periods and try to look for patterns and then theorize about religion uh, out of those patterns and, and out of those classification schemes.
0: That's great. And and that brings me to a, uh, maybe a follow up question because readers of my blog uh, one of one of the philosophers that I'm very uh, I feel very close to is William James and I've written quite a bit about uh some of his ideas from the varieties of religious experience uh and in my last few newsletters uh to the to the audience I've been ex- uh, saying a little bit about my my new love affair with your books and one of the things that I have said is that it feels like a continuation of the kind of inquiry that James was making into uh religious experience. And I, I wonder if, if you see that in, you know, if you would consider yourself to be in some, at least general way, uh, a continuation of that line of thought. Oh, absolutely.
1: I mean, we read James uh, uh, rigorously and deeply in, in graduate school and, the Varieties of Religious Experience is, you know, in the canon of the couple dozen or so books that any scholar of religion needs to read and, and understand. Um, I mean, my engagement with James is a somewhat off-center in terms of the the academic tradition I'm in. James is usually read as a pragmatist and as a philosopher and an early founder of of psychology in the in the American Academy, and of course he's all of those things, but he was also a very active psychical researcher and wrote a lot about mediums and uh, immortality and various kinds of psychical phenomena. And my my last or my last two books, which were the ones you're reading, are really really came out of a, a realization a few years ago that. You know, I had spent 20 years studying mysticism and never really thought about the paranormal or psychical phenomena, and that we all read James uh, and we all talked about his pragmatism or his comparisons, but nobody ever talks about his psychical research. And so that that really was a revelation for me, and, and I wanted to address the question of why we've taken that William James off the table and kept this other one on and, and what the field would look like if we put that William James back at the table. Mm. Uh and so that's really what I'm trying to do. So your 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 perception is actually extremely accurate. I, I would just add to it, you know, which William James are we talking about here. Right. Uh, um so that's that that's what I would say. Mm.
0: No, that's that that makes complete sense to me. And since since I've been reading your books, I've been having some obviously some of those same questions with you. Uh I've always been interested in, in James's psychical research. Um but you're absolutely right. It it the literature on that tends to be very separate from the vast majority of academic literature on James. Uh which which I just took as, you know, what you learn to accept in academia, but of obviously what you're you're raising questions about whether that's actually a good idea.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea at all. I I think James's broader thought is intimately related to his psychical research. I, I think he philosophized and psychologized out of his, his psychical research and his encounters with these mediums and, and clairvoyance and I and you know he he essentially made the same argument I made earlier that if you really want to study something you have to study it in its extreme state.
0: That's and,
1: right. And that's that's exactly what he did in varieties and and that's essentially what I'm trying to do uh, today. I'm just trying to bring that conversation in, into our own cultural world. And so I I tend to use examples from our own cultural world and not examples from the nineteenth early twentieth century, which of course was James's cultural world. He was right. he was doing the same thing just a hundred years ago.
0: Right. And I, I, I love that part of James's thinking. It it also it also to me connects with uh the kind of thinking that that Thomas Kuhn presented in his Structures of Scientific Revolutions, which, you know, my understanding of James is, is his view, which I think completely matches yours, uh, is that What we tend to study, if you think of a bell curve, is the vast majority of stuff that's in the middle. But what's what's new and exciting is everything that's out in the very small percentages on the fringe. Right. Uh, Because those that's where the that's where the things are that don't match with the dominant paradigm, and because they don't match, that already is proof that the dominant paradigm you know, that there's still room for it to grow. And so we should look to the fringes because that's where the new growth is going to be found.
1: Right. And and I guess I would add two things to that observation. One is the middle of the bell curve, which we know well, um, we tend to focus on it because that's what's most useful. You know, that's where we can do our engineering and our technology and the sciences and all the things that make our material existence uh, happier and, and healthier. But being useful and being true are two different things. Um, and this is where I'm not a pragmatist. I think a, there's a lot of things in that on the ends of that bell curve that are not technically useful in any pragmatic or practical sense, but nevertheless are true and add great meaning and depth to our lives if we could bring them into the middle of the bell curve. Mm. Um, the other thing I would say is I actually am not convinced that the things on the edge of the bell curve are rare or even marginal. My mm-hmm. my gut feeling is that they're actually in the middle of the bell curve. They're extremely common. They happen all the time to all sorts of people. But we have created a culture that rigorously shames and demeans and embarrasses them, uh, and therefore acts as a kind of filter. And so we think they're marginal and statistically anomalous, but they're actually not. They're actually a very normal, natural part of our world that we've just learned to ignore or to um, push to the, push to the edges, as it were.
0: Mm. No, I think that's then that's you know which we'll get into in a moment. But that's really the sense I got. From the, the books that I'm reading of yours, the argument you're making is that that these things that have been culturally characterized as fringy anomalies to the vast majority of experience are actually common, but that our, our current cultural constructs render them invisible.
1: Right, that's correct. And not just invisible, but as shameful. Right. I mean, it's more. It's it's not that innocent. It's not just that they're invisible. It's that they're they're morally bad. And um, I mean, I see this all the time. You know, trying to talk about these things in, in mm-hmm. the public. And um, so I think it's it's worse than that, unfortunately.
0: Right. It's like, it's like there's cultural. You know, there's cultural antibodies, and these kinds of experiences are treated as if they are infections that, right. that uh, yeah. get pushed yeah, that's out. That's
1: absolutely right. I, I don't know if you saw my exchange with Jerry Coyne last spring.
0: Um, I did. I did. I read it uh, when you sent it to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example. I mean, I <laughs> my piece was simply a call for, for humanists and scientists to talk and to create a, a public discourse that, could embrace the humanities and the sciences together, and one of the arguments, of course, I made is that to understand mind, we need to take mystical experiences and psychical phenomena into account because they're they're really powerful clues about what mind is. And you know, Mr. Coyne just took that as he called it woo woo, and and basically pathologized it right. in in the disease language that that your, um you're making reference to so i think that was that's kind of a signal or a sign of where a certain kind of conventional scientist is at and i think that's part of the problem i don't think science is the problem i think a particular kind of interpretation of science is the problem
0: Mm. Um, right right and and i'll i'll just share a personal a little about myself because it'll i think it'll help illuminate for you where i'm coming from uh I spent the vast majority of my adult life uh, as a very serious spiritual seeker. From for most of that time, living in uh, community, seeking through spiritual practices, uh, awakening experiences, and uh, and basically, when I was quite young, I would have regular experiences. Uh, And essentially, the way it happened was I would lock myself into my parents' bathroom. uh, And I'm not sure how old I was, but it's from as early as I can remember. I would stare at my own eyes in the mirror, and then my body would seem to expand until I moved out through the roof of the house, and then up so that I could see the planet below me, and and then all the way to the edges of the universe, and then... Once I was there, I would relax and come back down and find myself staring into my own eyes in the mirror. And I remember very distinctly the day that I went into the bathroom to do that and found that I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And uh, somehow it had been enculturated out of me, at least that's how I would interpret it now. And and from that, really, as a young child, I was looking for ways to recapture that experience and i didn't have it again until i was about uh 40 close to 40 years old in a in a spiritual retreat when i it's actually at that moment i had that experience of kind of cosmic expansion and then that's when i remembered all those times as a child it's like it all came back to me uh-huh. what the thread was that had led me uh to to that kind of very uh one pointed pursuit uh, of a kind of awakening experience. So so I'm finding your work thrilling because you're helping me understand why that kind of pursuit is is not really accepted in culture and why even my own experiences of it can very easily get buried into forgetfulness.
1: Right, and why you had to lock yourself in the bathroom <laughs>
0: in the first place, right? right. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's sort of that's sort of one key to the experience, right there. Uh, (laughs) That's really funny. I had never thought about that. Uh, (laughs) Uh, I mean, a bathroom. Later, when I was pursuing it, when I was a little older, I would lock myself in my father's car. So locking myself in places was always uh, key to feeling safe enough to let go. I guess.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah.
0: That's really really interesting.
1: Those sound like beautiful experiences too, and. Um, I I think you know I don't I know you've just read the last two books but the yeah. uh, I'm always trying to sell people another book you see um,
0: go ahead I'm I'm an eager uh, okay <laughs> so this my second
1: book called Roads of Excess Palaces of Wisdom was all about the mystical experiences of scholars of mysticism mm. and my argument which fits beautifully into the your your little autobiographical piece there is that a certain kind of intellectual a certain kind of philosopher a certain kind of scholar pursues the questions that she or he pursues uh not out of some kind of abstract curiosity but because of some extraordinary state or states they had been in and they want to understand those uh they want to they want to essentially theorize them create a a worldview and a and a a cognitive system that can include and encompass that which they knew to be the case. And inevitably, they look around and there is no philosophical or cultural system that can make sense of them. And so they go about creating one. And so I think that's actually what a lot of... um, Deep philosophical and intellectual labor is about is about creating another worldview in which you know we can make sense of these things and and not just make sense of them but nurture them and and create cultural practices to catalyze or 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 induce them again.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean that that perfectly describes my uh, sort of lifelong obsession, which is the pursuit of those experiences but then the philosophical part of me is a pursuit of wanting to understand them, make meaning out of them, you know, so that they can be lived, so that they can be nurtured, so that they can be built upon, but also so that they can be shared with others because it's it, those sorts of experiences don't they can leave you feeling lonely and right. separate.
1: So see you're what you're what I call an author of the impossible. You you're trying to authorize through your your writing and your your interviews here a world a world a cultural world a public cultural world in which that which we now consider to be impossible becomes possible
0: that's um, absolutely correct right
1: but to do that, you actually need a theory you you know we can't recognize data that we have no theory for it just looks anomalous and odd. we can only recognize data when we have something to plug it into and and that's why it's so important to theorize these things. And and again, I think that's what James was doing. And he was trying to essentially build a culture that that was a lot bigger and a lot more um, capacious than the the scientific early scientific materialism that that he was embedded in at Harvard.
0: Mm. That's great. I mean, that's so. So you can see why I'm so enamored with your <laughs> writing.
1: Well I well great. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a mutual fan club. I mean, I we're in this together and I I think a lot of people are here actually. And yes. and the books those two books that I wrote that you mentioned. I mean, they're really they're really mostly me channeling other people, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm just collecting a bunch of people who are saying really similar things but who don't know each other either because they're dead or they just don't know each other. And and I'm putting them into conversation and trying to sh- say, well, actually, there is a culture developing here. There is a conversation here. And it's really powerful. We just have to see it and, and bring it online, as it were.
0: Right. Absolutely. And and now I'd love to dive into some of your ideas. I, the whole thing was leading to uh, your conception of an author of The Impossible uh but we'll backtrack because there's a few pieces I want to fill in for people along the way uh and I think at least in my limited reading uh the the piece that I get very strongly is that your theory uh for fitting this data into uh really seems to rest on uh what I find a very exciting a very uh, uh unique vision of the relationship between consciousness and culture uh, which as i read your your writing i i something that really resonates with me seems to be what you are proposing which is that consciousness and culture the inner experience of reality of the individual and the uh, and the cultural constructs that that we hold, including literature and writing, and and many of the things that you uh, you know are including in in your research, that that's those are not separate things. There there's an, actually a continuum between those. They're they're part of a continuum. the The experience of reality is shaped by culture, and the and culture is shaped by reality. And and that may not sound uh, to many people who are hearing this as a partic- as, as a completely radical thought, but there 's a way that you 're going about it that I hope we can flesh out a little that I found really radical and I can actually honestly tell you that since i 've been reading your books, my perception of reality has been shifting uh, <laughs> that's and that's great. what i what I love in an uh, author 's books it 's because I read their books and I start noticing oh my god i 'm seeing what i 've been reading about. I'm actually right. seeing the reality that you were presenting in your books. So I would love to hear you talk about that profound relationship between consciousness and culture.
1: Right. Okay. So maybe the best way to think about that or to, to introduce it is, you know, I've thought a lot about the humanities. I, I teach at a, a wonderful university um, that has a history primarily rooted in, in the sciences and engineering. Um and so I've thought a lot about the relationship between the humanities and and the sciences and, and what the humanities are. And what I what I ultimately landed on is is that the humanities are the study of consciousness coded in culture. Uh in other words, what humanists do is we study when we study literature or, or um a foreign culture or a language or a piece of art, we're studying a form of consciousness that has expressed itself in some kind of cultural code, whether that's a, a piece of uh, material culture or a language or a piece of literature or religion or, or what have you. Um, and I think what, what humanists ultimately assume on some level is that reality is made up of words and stories and, and narratives. So we, we turn everything into a text um and i think you know there's some wisdom there whereas our scientific colleagues believe that reality is ultimately made of numbers um and so they turn everything into a number um and both of those of course are are perfectly um appropriate ways to approach reality but neither one of them are are complete in themselves and so what i've been trying to do essentially is argue for the importance of the humanities and Reinserting consciousness back into our our knowledge uh, practices and our order of knowledge, because if you think about our, the order of knowledge today in the universities, the 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 disciplines that are on top are those that approach reality as the most dead, and the disciplines that are on the bottom essentially approach reality. As the most alive or the most conscious so you know something like physics is on the top and something like literature or the study of religion is on the bottom as it were so we we've and and there are reasons for that because we can manipulate seemingly dead things and we can predict behavior and we can build things like iPhones I get that but but we're actually conscious creatures or conscious beings and we've taken consciousness out of the equation We've pretended that it doesn't exist and we still have lots of very smart people telling us that consciousness is an illusion, that it, it doesn't exist in its own right. It's it's just a function of neurons firing in very rapid sequence. Mm. Um, and so what I'm trying to argue is that actually consciousness does exist in its own right um, and that it expresses itself through human beings who then create culture, and the culture then kind of reflects back onto these human beings. And so there's this weird loop of consciousness and culture that's set in place, both in an individual life but also through generations, and that we're constantly caught in that loop. It's like a never-ending movie that we're the characters in, but we're also the producers and the writers and the directors. And it's almost impossible to think our way out of that, loopiness but there are moments often in an individual life when someone becomes aware that you know they're actually not in the movie, that the movie's there but they're something else. They're the projector behind behind the audience or something. And whatever right. metaphor I mean this is Plato's cave, right? I mean this is this is this is not a new idea. Um but you can kind of update it by thinking about it as a movie theater and so, what a lot of my recent work has been about is looking at people's experiences when they begin to realize that they're caught in these fictional reels and and that they have some capacity to to rewrite the movie or rewrite the story and 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 so, that's what I've been interested in i I think when you talk about enlightenment uh, or liberation in sort of the Buddhist or Hindu sense, you're talking about getting out of the movie altogether. Um, Right. And um, I certainly understand that and and admire that, but that has not been my project. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not claiming enlightenment, and I'm not even particularly interested in it uh, at this point in my career. I'm I'm more interested in getting us to write a better movie to live in.
0: Right, right.
1: so I don't know if any of that helps, but that, that's, a, that's an initial articulation of how I relate consciousness to culture. And I, said, I suppose the, the other thing I would say, which might help some of your, your listeners, is at least in the fields I inhabit and the colleagues I talk to, say in the study of religion or literature or philosophy or, or anthropology or sociology, all of these disciplines tend to reduce consciousness to culture. Mm-hmm. They're only they're only willing to talk about consciousness as a local social construction or as a historical context. No one or very few people today are willing to talk about consciousness as consciousness. Right. Uh, that's the real verboten, that's the real taboo um is to develop a discourse that does not assume some kind of marxist materialism. Right. And and so that's what I'm trying to do. That's actually what I'm writing against. I'm, I'm not against historical contextualization or social constructionism or, or historiography or anything else. I, I just don't think those things are adequate to encompass the full scope of, of human experience. And I think they're actually, they actually fail quite dramatically when it comes to understanding someone's paranormal experience or someone's experience of mind as mind Mm. Uh, as opposed mm. to some ego or some social context
0: right and and that's great thank you and and it's a perfect jumping off point for for where I want to go because uh you know what you just described, which is culture cultural artifacts, literature, architecture are essentially publicly viewable crystallized reports on consciousness right uh, and you know I think at least for my listeners that's not that won't be too big a leap Uh, i'm looking outside now uh, at some buildings that were probably built in the 18th century and and you can see in the lines and in the order and the structure you can you can sort of imagine the consciousness that would create such a building uh and and you can see that the architecture is is a reflection it's a snapshot of the consciousness that created it Uh, what i found in your in your book that 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 took me even beyond that, uh and I, I realize that in academia that's already uh you're already pushing the edge, but in your in your writing, uh, if we use literature, which is what at least the books I was reading are focused on, I think it's clear, I think most people, many people would would be able to easily relate to the fact that the literature of any given time period is a reflection of the consciousness of that time period, uh, at least my listeners. Uh, But what I found really where the loopiness comes in is that uh, you were attributing a kind of uh, almost agentic causality to the literature. That the literature was not just a report on reality. The literature was also a causal factor in the creation of reality. Right. And, and I think that's, at least for me, that's where your, your notion or the way that you're thinking about consciousness and culture gets, gets very exciting. And, and as you said, it gets harder to think yourself out of the, out of the loop because you're, the literature that you're reading, and even more exciting, as you uh, generously said about me earlier, the, the literature that you might be writing is not just a report on the way things are, it's it has a it has a causal creative effect on the way things are.
1: Yeah, and I would even say a magical effect.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you uh, know I that
1: agree. you know this ancient notion that language is is a magical force or power that that creates a reality of its own. I think is essentially correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that both in both authors of the impossible and mutants and mystics, what I'm really looking at there are authors. And artists who understand their creative output as magical in some sense, um, right. both because they've experienced some altered state of mind or energy, and but also because they see the writing as itself a magical or mystical practice. It's mm-hmm. it's not a mechanical skill for them, although it's that too. It's you know when they're in the zone, when they're in that trance state that every writer knows something else is coming through and they're they're part of it and then that story or that image or that idea then gets projected out into the culture and it starts to do its work with other human beings and then some of those human beings call for an interview or something like this. That's and,
0: right. That's and right. Then,
1: and then you have that loop again, you know, you have this weird loop we're all in. And, you know, the first, there's been many times in my life where I've thought about that, but one of, some of the most powerful are when I talk to people and they're trying to explain to me something that happened to them, and they're using the language of the psychical or the paranormal usually, but what they'll say is, you know, it was as if I were caught in a movie, or it was as if I realized I was a character in a novel, and, and, and And that's a very powerful sense for them. And what it made me realize was if you take the findings of the humanities and the social sciences as a whole, that, of course, is exactly what we've been saying for decades, that everyone is caught in a movie or a novel, right?
0: Mm -hmm. We're
1: all, to the extent we inhabit a culture or a religion even more so, we're caught in that narrative. And that narrative was not written by us. It was written by our ancestors, sometimes over over centuries or even millennia. And because I'm in the study of religion, I'm very aware that these narratives cause us a lot of suffering now, and they create a lot of cognitive dissonance, primarily because they're narratives that were written thousands of years ago when we just didn't know what we know now, and our values were different. And so I work with a lot of religious people who are essentially caught between two narratives or stories and are suffering because of it. And so part of my message is, look, we're all caught in a story that's been written by others, but here's, here's the good news. We can rewrite it. Mm-hmm. And maybe we won't reap the benefits of it in this life. But our children and our grandchildren will, you know. So you know. So I I see this this authoring of the impossible or this rewriting of culture through consciousness. It's it's not just an individual project. It's it's a generational or multi generational project that that just goes on and on and on and on. Um, and I think it's creative. I think it's primarily creative and constructive. Right. Um, and so that, and is
0: this what you refer to in uh the book as uh, the metaphysics of history
1: um i actually i don't i don't know what i meant what, can you give me a a better um or a
0: i i only remember the term it really stuck uh, stuck out to me um but it it was around these ideas that that um <clears throat> I, you know, had to do with the fact that the story can be rewritten, and that the story. Uh, I think in, a, in 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 the same place in the book, you also quote William Blake saying that uh, it's not that just that we are living out stories, but stories are living themselves through us.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I don't actually honestly don't recall using that phrase. But the other thing I could have meant by it was, I I truly think that. People experience the texture of reality differently in different historical time periods
0: that's yes that is the time that you were writing about that when you mentioned it definitely.
1: yeah yeah and and that's why some things are possible and some and some things are impossible in a particular cultural moment, and then other things will be possible and other things will be impossible in another cultural moment because of because of the categories and the language practices and the the deep deep unconscious cultural assumptions that everyone makes and that mm-hmm. restrain us right. in all sorts of ways, um, but also make certain things possible.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and this is what I find so, this is where I resonate with your work so strongly, uh, because I know that you know we live inside of stories, and the stories that we live inside of, dictate what's possible. They they create a boundary around what's possible, what's not possible, what's real, right. what's real. Uh and it's not, as you said alluded to earlier, it's not just that they they render them invisible, but even more than invisible, they render them unreal. Right. Uh you don't in inside that story, they're just unreal. They're not they don't exist in there. Uh but if you shift the story you actually can expand and, and alter what's possible and And then you know your your author of the of the impossible is is also an author of the possible because you you change what becomes possible and and I think people can do that you know to some extent as individuals or small groups and and then what you're speaking about now is that we all together do that as much larger cultures spanning generations, and that's why there's more possible for us today than there was for cultures. A thousand years ago and there will be more possible in the future assuming we make it to the future right uh, there'll be more possible then than there is now
1: right right that's right and it also i mean one of the things i'm responding to jeff is you know i work a lot with uh in the human potential movement and in various new age literatures and communities and you get this claim a lot in particularly new age literature that one can create one's own reality, you mm-hmm. know, and you know, my response to that is yes and no. Um, I think the, the mistake the new age literature makes is that it puts too much emphasis on individual agency and it downplays or gro- grossly underestimates the power of social forces. Right. Um, you know, it's, and I think this is why – it's not that it's wrong. I think the general metaphysical insight actually is correct. I think we do actually create our own realities. But we create those realities in communities and and over time and generations. And it's extremely rare that a single individual can break with a story and create another one out of scratch um, or or out of other pieces that are lying around. But I think that's essentially what a religious prodigy or or a genius does do. Um, right. So I, I I think it's possible. I mean, I think people can recreate or create a new reality. But generally speaking, those are things we do uh, through through society and through culture and art and literature and and right. and conversation.
0: And and that mirrors my experience, which is to a certain extent I can create my own reality I can I can reauthor my story but if I'm living inside of a right. of a cultural story that doesn't match mine right you pretty quickly hit the edges which is which is why I personally wanted to live in a community of people who shared a similar story because you could you know the more the the bigger the the community that shares the story the more the possibilities of that story come alive for everyone.
1: Right. And and but here's here's the other catch which we haven't talked about. Once you're aware that we're all in a story or a set of stories, then it becomes really hard to live in a community mm-hmm. who thinks that they're not in a story, that this is the way things really are for everyone for all time. Right and unfortunately that's exactly how a lot of religious communities think and talk um and so that i think you know this is essentially the postmodern um dilemma you know once once you're aware of the constructions then it's really hard to convince yourself into another construction but essentially what i'm saying is yeah we're all in a story yeah it's all all of these things are constructed but they're constructed on something or someone mm-hmm. which we can call consciousness or, or mind. And and so, you know, I'm not at the end of the day I'm not I'm not advancing another kind of postmodern relativism. Um I, I accept the critique and I accept the constructivist critique but I just would insist that there's something there that right. all of these things are being told on or constructed out of.
0: Right, that's that's beautiful, and it, it brings me to wh- what I'd like to ask you about, and and this is where I'm going to just share my own interpret my own intuitive t- interpretation of what I've read of yours that may or may not uh, be what you intended, but you know sometimes you read uh, an author's work and you get inspired with insights that you find incredibly thrilling, but. You're not 100% sure it's what the author meant, uh, but it might have been, and and that is you know one of the things that you write about are you speak about the super story and and being a uh, a comparativist and and as I was reading the picture that started to form in my mind uh, was that if you look at paranormal literature and experience over a sweep of history and throughout different cultures what you begin to see is that there is a a super story there is there is a story the way i have interpreted it from your writing is that there's a story about the ultimate potentials of consciousness or of humanity that that exists but, but it does it, ex, it it exists beyond the dimension that's currently our reality. So, in other words, I experience it as uh, the story itself is almost like a being who and the existence of which extends far beyond the dimensions of reality that, that we as are in our current form are connected to, but it passes through. The dimensions that we are in, and we see evidence of it in paranormal experiences and uh and and mystical revelations, which inevitably we try to interpret within the framework of our current dimensionality uh, but what I thought I heard in your writing was the idea that if we look comparatively uh, at a big enough uh, breadth. Of these kinds of experiences, we will start to to see the outlines of a of a super story about the possibilities of humanity that is passing through our dimensions and uh, and and again, I don't know if you would agree with that interpretation, but it certainly was something that has completely captured my mind, and and that that idea has started a process of of me rethinking a lot of things that I've experienced um, because of seeing them not as even a linear progression of my own spiritual development, but as, you know, taken as a whole, uh, an emergence of uh, some kind of a a super story that is passing through uh, the dimensions, the current dimensions of my life.
1: I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, Jeff. I you know, you're you're channeling a bit of Charles Fort there. Um who saw and the, the way I would translate that is comparison becomes a comparison if it's done robustly and and rigorously enough becomes a kind of awakening um because you're no longer identified with just your local set of truths or your local consciousness coded in Whatever forms it's coded in, you start to see these much bigger patterns, and and so reality starts to shift for you because your your gestalt is way 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 bigger, um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I see comparison as you know almost a kind of occult practice. It's it it has the potential to open us up to entirely new perspectives, um, but you know it itself, of course, has been resisted along with all these other ideas over the last 30-40 years you know at least in my field comparison has been out for about 30 years um, and the emphasis has been on the local and the historical and the constructed (coughs) Um, Mm, so again I'm trying to write against that or Mm -hmm. or at least write, write through it I understand the critique of the earlier comparative methods but I'm trying to offer something that's that's more. Right. That's more sophisticated. Um, I, you know, I don't know about you. One of the things I say a lot is, particularly to my colleagues in the humanities, is, is you know, I'll get up at, for a lecture at a, at a university somewhere and I'll say, um, you know, I, I've been in this biz 25 years now, and I think I've finally figured out what the ultimate criterion of truth is in the humanities, and and then I say, well. You, that ultimate criterion is it must be depressing and the truth has to be depressing if you say something that ultimately reduces human experience to a a power play or an economic strategy or some kind of oppressive or repressive uh social system then you're you know you're cool you're an intellectual right but if you say something that's actually positive uh, or ecstatic or God forbid transcendent, then you're a dilettante, or you're a you're not serious or you're you're new agey or you're as Mr. Coyne called me, you're woo woo. Um so for some reason intellectuals have decided to be depressing over but not only very recently. You know? Yeah. Uh, Again, you read somebody like William James 100 years ago, it's not depressing. It's actually quite uh, expansive and capacious. Um, It's only recently we've decided to shrink the human being down to, you know, now neurons uh, or cognitive templates. We've become a a walking biological computer, a kind of zombie. Mm -hmm. And um, I just i just think that's wrong um. mm,
0: mm. and i guess that's where where you and and your colleague uh, timothy morton uh, you know, have similar ideas he spoke to me about uh, about the cynicism in the academy and how yeah. uh, often it's 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 whoever can be the most cynical that uh... is able to garner the approval of uh, truth
1: that's right. Yeah. And that's a, just another way of saying what I just said. I mean, mm-hmm. to be yeah, depressing absolutely. is also, you know, to be cynical. And the other term that's used a lot is, you know, it's it's also okay to be ironic.
0: Right.
1: Um, to, to, you know, kind of slightly make fun of all of these naive people who actually think there's meaning and mind in the universe. Um, but, you know, again, once you step out of that game and actually listen to people who've had such experiences, it's... It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to just keep being ironic or cynical or depressing.
0: Right. Um, right. Uh, and then I, I wanted to just get back to to, to something just to see what your uh, take on it would be, but it has to do with this idea that there's there's a story, maybe maybe many stories uh, that are beyond what is currently in existence. Because I, I guess this is how how I uh feel this and this is what i've been experiencing that there is this isn't only about me being able to author the impossible it's about a story that's bigger than me uh that's that extends beyond the world that i know that is wanting to author itself into existence and that i have uh the capacity to uh cooperate with and and so the authoring the author isn't necessarily me it, it's something that feels bigger than me it feels like what what uh, i hear in your writing as a super story that wants to wants to manifest more fully in in this world uh and and i find that partly because i have such mystical inclinations i find that a very uh Exciting way to to uh, interpret what you what you've written.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think that's just an interpretation. I mean, I think that's an excellent description of of, of what I what I've tried to write or what I've what I've tried to be up to. Um,
0: <laughs> no, I'm glad because I, I I just didn't want to put words in your mouth, but that's exactly what I heard in your writing, which yeah, is yeah. Well,
1: you you did you put words shipped. in my mouth, and they they were the right words. So <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> I should have you write the back covers
0: you know <laughs> uh, i find I find it very uh you know i find i find your ideas very exciting and and maybe one last question you know and, and and a comment from me, one other thing that I found interesting about both of the books that I've read, and I will definitely look for roads of excess uh because 'cause I've read quite a bit, you know not. Not exhaustively, but i 've read quite a bit about alternative spiritual histories, alternative mystical histories uh, you know alternative histories of consciousness and and paranormal experience uh, but reading your books has introduced me to a whole host of thinkers like Charles Fort, that somehow I missed uh, in in my earlier reading i mean Charles Fort was one that I had some sense of but I'd never known extensively. And I just think you are identifying a very interesting path of of literature through this this terrain of the paranormal and the and the mystical that's unusual. It's different than what I have found in other places.
1: Right. I mean authors of the impossible so really how so how that book came to be was I finished this History of the Human Potential Movement in California. The the book is called Esalen America and the Religion of No Religion. And while I was working on that book, which took a long time, I interviewed dozens, if not hundreds of people, many of whom I got to know very well, who told me stories that I knew couldn't happen, but that I knew happened. And I realized that as somebody who claimed to know something about the history of mystical literature, that that essentially I had nothing. Mm -hmm. I I had no way of even thinking about what they were telling me. Because I realized that my field or my discipline had marginalized all those things for decades, if not centuries. And as a result, you could study mysticism for 20, 30 years and never once read a book about psychical or paranormal phenomena. Right. Because those things were seen as fluff or as distractions from from the path as it were. And so what authors of the impossible is, is really an intellectual history of the psychical and the paranormal, tracing it back to late nineteenth century currents around Cambridge and and Harvard and then eventually Duke. And the argument one of the arguments I'm making in the book is actually these categories were all invented by academics they they were all invented by scientists and philosophers and psychologists there there are words and they then we then abandoned them sometime in the 20s 1920s or 30s and they sort of float around and they eventually land in popular culture and in the tabloids where they're now just kind of made fun of by folks like us but actually they're all they're all academic terms, and if you understand what the original coiners meant by them, they're actually really sophisticated terms too.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so that book was really an attempt to 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 trace that intellectual lineage that you you were just referring to, and to say actually these folks are really really smart, and these people are worth reading, and this is why we don't read them anymore, and this is why we should read them and um you know it it's so it's an attempt to kind of reactivate that lineage um and 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 put it back on the table
0: mm, that's fantastic so uh, just a final word uh from you uh, i'm I'm wondering if you have any advice that you would give to to the authors of the impossible that will inevitably listen to this podcast uh, who are out there in their own ways trying to write a story uh, that they can live in.
1: I, you know, I suppose my, this is where I trip up a bit. I, people often ask me questions like this, um, you know this is why i never became a religious teacher because mm-hmm. I, I suck at giving people things to do <laughs> I, i'm no good at at suggesting practices
0: uh although right. i have
1: my own um mm-hmm. i suppose if i had to give one piece of advice it would be to seek out community of some sort to s- seek out a network and 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 realize fairly quickly that you're not alone, and that you're not as strange as you thought you were, and that there are lots of other people trying to do very similar things. And I think we have to be more creative, actually, about creating community. Uh, it's one of my big concerns about mm. this world that we, in, this world you and I have been talking in for the right. last hour. The um, you know the religious traditions that know how to create community, unfortunately, a lot of them tend to be. Tend to inhabit really scary worldviews um but they fill up their parking lots because right. they know how to create community right and and because the people we talk to and read are such inveterate individualists and and freedom and and creativity are such powerful values we we tend to be loners and but as a result, we tend to lose all the cultural discussions.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: We lose. We lose the. Uh, I don't want to make it too too crude, but we lose the elections. Um And right. I. I just think you know. I think there's more of us than we think. I, in fact, actually, I think most of the most of the American culture under the age of 30 is somewhere in this zone, and looking for guidance, looking for people to articulate the worldview. And um, you know, I think that's what we should be trying to do.
0: Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Well that's it's exactly the advice uh I was hoping for. Uh, uh although I didn't realize I was hoping for it till I heard it. And community <laughs> and building community is is what makes my heart sing because I want I want people to be able to come together in in what they've realized. So I'm I'm very happy that uh that you ended that way. And Jeffrey, I really want to thank you for your time and I hope we can talk again. Uh, I'm finding your work fascinating and and I would like to do my part to bring it to a wider audience.
1: Oh, I, I, I really appreciate it. I'm happy to talk again. Absolutely.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much.